and welcome to this week's Foundation Stage Forum podcast. This week, I'm joined by Richard O'Neill, who is a storyteller, author, and playwright. Hello, Richard. So we are actually on location this week at Seven Stories in Newcastle. Can you tell us a little more about the National Centre for Children's Books and how you're involved? I can. Um, I've been working here now for the last 18 months as their creative lead in residence, which means that I... Uh, work with all of the staff here and um, I'm able to learn from them but also be able to bring my experience from working in schools and museums and lots of other creative places for the last nearly 20 years. It's the National Centre for Children's Books but we do a huge amount of storytelling and what we will say about Seven Stories is first of all it's free entry so anybody can come here for free and have a look around. We're all about the stories, we're all about the books. Sounds a, fa- a brilliant place to come and work. And uh, storytelling on that theme has been a constant in your life. I wondered if you could tell us about your earliest memory of storytelling. Well, I grew up in a fully nomadic Romani family um, and we travelled around. We lived in caravans uh, all around the northeast and, and Lancashire and the Midlands. And storytelling really was my first way of learning because for a lot of the original Romani people, they didn't read and write very much, if at all. And story was the way of not only telling us about our history, it was also about informing you about the world around you. So, you know, stories that have morals, stories that have instructions, and stories that just made you feel happy, just about fun. Um, that's, that, that was my first um, introduction to story. And I thought everybody did that. But when I went to school, I realized that not everybody did that. You know, a lot of stories came from books, and I love books, I write books. Um, but storytelling for me is still the most wonderful, powerful, beautiful way of learning um, in the whole wide world. So were there particular people in your life who you remember telling you stories as a young boy? Absolutely. I was very, very lucky because I had um, grandparents on both sides. And um, my, well, my dad and my mum came from quite different backgrounds. And I had all of this working class stories, all of the stories of the coal mines or the pits around here, and then all of the stories of the Romani people from around here. So I had this wonderful, massive array of stories. And, you know, stories develop empathy. Stories tell you about history. And in some ways, stories kind of predict the future as well. Okay, so, I mean, you, you mentioned, obviously, um, in terms of your childhood, uh, being from, like, that nomadic Rom- Romani gypsy background, could you tell us a little more, more about sort of the differences, I suppose, in your childhood and, and what it was like? Yeah, I mean, growing up, whatever community or, or culture you grow up in, you don't really question it because as a young child, you know, you, your earliest, my earliest memories are like about three-year-old sitting on a caravan bunk, um, listening to these stories and then going about, you know, my, my, my day with my family. And I didn't really realise that I was different. And I don't think anybody realises they're different as a child until somebody else tells you or shows you you are. So I went to school when I was five. You know, back in the 1970s, you went to school when you were five. There was no nurseries. Um, Schools would start in September. If you were five, you'd go in September if you were old enough, or you'd join in Easter, which I did because my birthday was February. And when I went to school, I realized that I was very, very different. My lifestyle, my home life was very, very different 
um, to to most of well all of the children um, in school. So that's when I realised that it was different, and I'm not saying it was better, um, you know, or worse. It, it was just different. But I'm, I was very fortunate, I think, to have that community upbringing in terms of story. And I taught myself to read when I was four. I just got obsessed with books. And then when I went to school, a wonderful teacher, she taught me how to write. So I know people, you know, will say things about school and their early memories of school and some weren't, weren't good. I went to lots of different schools in the Northeast and some were okay, some were good, some were bad, some were indifferent. Um, but whatever people think about schools, then if they taught you how to write, then I think that's an amazingly powerful thing. And can you remember what you used to like to write about as a child? Do you know what? That's, that's really interesting. I, I used to, to write about um, a couple of things. But first, and I think this to me, I don't know whether she knew what she was doing, this teacher, or whether it was just the way they were taught at what would be, I guess, teacher training college at the time. The first thing she taught me to write was my name. Now, I had never seen my name in print before. So she gave me this card. She wrote out my name, Richard O'Neill. And I looked at that name. And when I could write my own name, that was incredibly empowering. And I could take that home and show my parents and grandparents and, and aunts and uncles that I could write my name. And for me, that was just incredibly empowering. And then I started to do my first, I guess, my first fictional writing, because one of the things about when you come from a closed community, which ours was back in the day, was that you weren't supposed to tell people what you were doing because, you know, my mum and dad were very guarded about our lives. Not that we were doing anything wrong. It was just that I think when you come from a community, a particular community, you're always concerned that people will use information against you. So... I would write, we had a little news book and we were supposed to write about it on a Monday morning about what we'd done at the weekend. Mine was just pure fantasy. Uh, it was nothing <laughs> like I'd done at the weekend. You know, I was building a, a log cabin with my Uncle Peter. I don't have an Uncle Peter. <laughs> I never built a log cabin as a kid, but I was sort of like being inspired, or shall we say, let's not call it nicking it, but I was nicking some of the information from the reading scheme we were doing in school. But I was, my mum was buying me these books from the newsagent and I was about oh, 10 books ahead of the other kids because I was just a voracious reader. So I was nicking some of the stuff out of this reading scheme that these two kids were doing and I was putting that on my newsletter. This teacher must have thought, she either must have thought he's making this up or gosh, he's having an exciting life at the weekend. <laughs> it sounds, uh, it sounds fun. So, um, Back to the storytelling, I suppose. It is such a, a powerful tool when you're working with children or, or spending time with them. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it works so well? I think it's tribal. I think it's in our DNA. I think we have always done this. The very earliest humans have done this. I think you can see it when we sit in a pub or we sit in a, another community space. We sit in circles and we tell stories. I think it's the easiest, the most powerful, beautiful way to pass information between people. I think with storytelling, with information, it goes from head to head. With storytelling, it goes from heart to heart. And I think with, that's just an innate love of it within us. You know, I've, I've seen family audiences come here to, the, to Seven Stories 
and maybe there's somebody in a, a little baby in a buggy or whatever, maybe somebody running around a bit. And we love kids here, so do bring them. Um, but once you start telling stories, there's this story space. It, it just seems to um, give out this aura, this beautiful aura, and children then start to come and sit down. They start to listen. And I think it's because they know you're not doing information to them or at them. You're actually doing something really wonderful with them. And that's what storytelling is about. You do it with people, not at them or to them. You talk there about sort of different settings, I suppose, Tons. Do you have a preferred space for telling the story? No. As a storyteller um, who's travelled around, who's worked everywhere from nursery to, to prisons, um, then you create that story space. One of the best story spaces I've ever been in was in a chapel in a prison with 40 inmates. Um, and the intention from me, the intention from them, and everybody who was there was just to enjoy this, this hour and a half. And we created this story space. And I think, I think that's what you do. Um, so there's, there's no preferred place. Um, you create that space. You know, I've told stories on a market stall uh, in a busy market, um, anywhere, it doesn't matter. It's just there's something, I think, in our DNA. Now, also, you know, when we get on to the, the more sort of scientific side of storytelling, you know, it creates dopamine, it creates oxytocin, it creates all these incredible chemicals going through our brain. So even the most, you know, disruptive or child who's really not used to sitting down Teachers, parents, grandparents will be amazing. Oh, I can't believe he sat for half an hour. Can't believe she sat for an hour. Um, again, there's just something about that. You know, it's in our DNA, and there's some lovely chemicals. That's why I love telling stories because you know, as an ADHD person, it gives me some of those lovely chemicals as well. Something I've written about in the past um, around sort of like spinning a yarn, I suppose, with young children is actually around transitional stories and going for a walk who's one-to-one with a child and a family member and, and being able to tell a story about the environment you are in. Um, is that something you've done before, sort of on the move, if you like, or do you generally prefer to be in a, in a space? Yeah, do it, do it anywhere. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, you can tell stories. That's, that's the wonderful thing about stories. You can tell them anywhere, anytime, any length. You don't need anything specific. All you need, I think is the right intention. You know, why are you telling this story? Am I, am I telling this story to try and persuade a child to think a certain way? Or am I just, just want to share something with them? Do I want them to be able to use their imagination to think a little bit differently for themselves about something? Absolutely. Do I want to show alternatives? Absolutely. Do I want them to think about something um, that they really like and expand on it and think out of their current thinking. Absolutely. You know, I've told stories with older children who are at risk of exclusion and certain projects and we talk about entrepreneurialism. And, you know, with a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, whether you're a social entrepreneur as I am or whether you're, you're not, then you have to be able to think about the possibilities. You have to have a good imagination. And what storytelling does, it actually fuels imagination. Do you do you think anyone has it in them to be a storyteller? Are you talking there about obviously there's levels to this game and <laughs> in terms of imagination and skill and uh, but do you think everyone has it in them to to tell a story? Absolutely. 
because I don't care who you are. One of the things that whenever I meet anybody, I'm interested in their story. I think we've just sort of met in person now. And I asked you, tell me a little bit about your story, about how you ended up in Newcastle. And you told me. Right? So everybody can tell their story. Now, whether they want to tell other stories, that's another thing. But I think we start from that premise that everybody can tell their story. And one of the things is, I think, what the media has done over time, it has shown us, and, and, and children's TV, I think, the same, it has shown us that a storyteller looks and sounds a certain way. Hello, children, <laughs> I'm a storyteller. And you have to wear bright claws and look a bit like a clown. Um, not true. You know, one of the best things for children, I think, and adults, is to listen to stories from lots and lots of different people. Younger people, I've been told stories by four-year-olds that have been fascinating. I've been told stories by 95-year-olds that have been fascinating. And everybody in between. Everybody has a story. Everybody has the ability to tell their story. And then with a little bit of help and a bit of support, if they want to, people can learn to tell many more stories. So you, you are an author as well, and you've written many books. How do you distinguish your roles sort of as a storyteller and as an author, or are they the same thing? It's all about story. Everything's a story. Some of my stories end up in books, some of them don't. And I had a conversation um, with people after an event in a very, very nice Big, big sort of uh, stately home thing, a museum it was, and I told some stories uh, and, and showed my books. And a girl, it's about 10 or 11, she was asking, asked, everybody was asking questions and she asked these questions and she said, Mr. O'Neill, will that story be in a book? And I said, not that story, no, I, it wouldn't like it. And she just nodded and she got it. She realised that some stories, like some children, do not want to be encapsulated and kept like that. And she, she said, yeah, because it would be stuck forever, wouldn't it? I said, you're absolutely right. So some stories will, some of my stories will never go in books because I want to keep them free and I want the ability to be able to change them. I was going to say, I said, do you have stories that have evolved then? Absolutely. I created a, um, I'm, a I'm a woodcarver as well. I grew up as a, as a, as a peg maker and woodcarver and, and, Around in the north of England, back in the day, a hundred years ago perhaps, there were certain folk singers and entertainers who had, and they had them in other parts of the country as well. They were like wooden puppets, but they didn't have strings. They had a stick coming out the back of them. And they were called a jig doll or a dancing doll. And in a small space, if you were busking or in a pub or something like that, you would have this little doll that would dance to your music. You know, be about uh, 30 centimetres high. So I thought... Mm. I was talking to an older traveller lady and she says, oh, I remember them. I said, you haven't got any photographs of you? And she said, no. I said, I remember, I said, I remember people talking about them, but I don't remember them. She said, uh, I said, and I can't draw really very well, but anyway, she described it and I drew it. And I created this wooden character. I thought, I'll take it to schools, see what kids think. You know, they've got Disney, Pixar and everything else. You know, it'll be interesting. This old character called Little Geordie, he's made out of bits of wood. And he has a stick out of his back and I move him up and down. He is absolutely hilarious in schools. Children, they're asking now, because it's been going for like two years, they're asking now, when will there be a cartoon? When will he be on the TV? Some children in Birmingham last week, we're right into Netflix. <laughs> so, but the reason why this 
this wooden dancing doll puppet thing is so intriguing and so loved and, and all the rest of it is because of their imagination. What I'm showing them is, it's their imagination. And they know it's me. I'm not trying to pretend that this, this, this doll is real. Um, but they're just going along with it. But it's their imagination. And I think that's incredibly powerful when children know that it's not real, but they choose to go along with it. And I and I think that I think that's really, really good. So yeah, all of that kind of stuff for me is just, you know, with storytelling it never ends. I'm always trying to do the next thing. Go to the next thing. Will that work? Will that work? And just trying it out. So do you work with children of a range of ages? Because I suppose something you said there around sort of that that they know it's not real, but they're choosing to continue to use their imagination, I suppose. And, and a bit like a lot of our conversations, um, specifically working in the early years are around like play and the importance of play. And then these things tend to just stop at six years old and everything gets a bit too formal. And um, do you find that children do really even as they grow and get older, they still have that desire for that to be able to use their imagination and link to that storytelling. Absolutely. Give them the opportunity for playfulness and they will do it. Now, what happens is very often when we get our children up to sort of 9, 10, 11, and particularly with social media, the things that are funny tend to be more cruel. They tend to be people falling over. They tend to be people doing this. They tend, and that's if that's all they've got, that's what they'll laugh at. But with this character, with the daftness, that's kind of stories that, you know, the weird and wondrous stories that I do, then you've got year five, year six, year seven, just laughing, just having the joy of being able to be a bit silly, to be a bit daft. But it's all about imagination. When we talk about future employment, and I was listening to somebody um, from uh, Microsoft DeepMind talking the other day, yesterday actually, and saying, you know, if you're an 18-year-old now, what, what, what would you suggest they do? And it's really not about coding. He said, uh, one of the biggest things is that you must learn how to learn and you must learn how to be adaptable. And what we're trying to do, I think, with story is to show how adaptable it is, how adaptable you are. And actually, there are loads and loads of really successful people, whether in the arts or in business or science, have just thought, Wow, wouldn't that be amazing if that happened? Let's have a think about that. Let's have a play around with that. It becomes real. We must never, ever stop playing around with our imagination. And that, for me, is what storytelling allows us to do. It allows us to have fun with words and imagination. And I suppose some people, I know we talked there before around sort of everyone can do it, but sometimes allowing yourself to do it and maybe taking that risk and pushing yourself a little bit to allow yourself to be more creative and maybe a bit more daft and have a bit more fun. Um, as an adult, it isn't always encouraged, is it? And and I suppose something we both have in common is that we have in our working life got to spend time with children and, and it allows us to tap into that side. But um, yeah, I think it is a really important point and especially as you say about employability and, and the links to much bigger much more significant projects um, with the starting points of, of that imagination again you know you, you, it's it's your mindset isn't it it's how you view things for example you know I can remember last year actually 
um, I'm in a nursery and I'd been before uh, about two months previously and this child comes rushing in and says um, it's, it's my birthday tomorrow guess what I'm getting it's a four year old and I'm like well four year old the next day and I say oh, I don't know what you're getting I'm getting a unicorn <laughs> so I'm like what colour just go with it but you know, why some some people well, unicorns mm, don't really exist, do they? And maybe we'll get oh right, okay. You know, why spoil the joy? Why spoil the joy? And it is that feeding the imagination, isn't it? Right? Absolutely. Don't stunt it. Yeah. <laughs> Feed it. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, it's 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 such a wonderful thing to explore. You know, and and, and, and children's imaginations and that and, and one of the joys is when you're telling a story. And you can see some of the faces of the children. They know what's going to happen next. They've got it. And that's really amazing. That they're thinking, oh, I tell this story about, uh, based on an older neighbour of mine who I used to live next door to. Changed the names for legal reasons and all that. But um, Stella, Stella's slippers. This woman was obsessed with slippers. So I created a story about Stella and her slippers. And there comes a point... And you can see it's kind of like year four, year five, year six, year seven, and beyond. And you can just see the look on some of the children's faces. They're like, oh, I just know they've got it. And that's wonderful. You know, imagination, being able to see the future in, your, in the story, it's a real sign of intelligence. I just wanted to go back to um, talking a little bit more about your background. And um, you're an activist uh, working hard to positively promote gypsy culture and inclusion. Why is this such an important topic? Well, I think it's because where I come from, um, you know, when I was a kid, I never read anything positive about gypsies and traps. And, and, and you know, I'll qualify that by saying that every community, I don't care which community you are, there is good and bad. You know, my dad gave me two brilliant pieces of advice growing up and they stick with me every day. There's good and bad in everybody and speak as you find. And the problem is, if you don't meet people from different communities, how can you speak as you find? You only learn about the negative stuff. And that was one of the drivers behind having the, the books that, I, that I've done. Some of the books are not all about uh, Romani culture. But just having something positive for a change. You know, there are a lot of positives in my community. There are some negatives, like there are in any community. But there are some positives, and the positives were never highlighted. So for me, it's really, really important. You know, I'm proud of where I came from. I'm proud of my background. I'm proud of what it's given me. I'm thankful for what it's given me. And, you know, anybody who said to me today, would you change any part of your upbringing? Absolutely not. No, I would not change anything about my upbringing or my life. Um, you know, I was very, very fortunate to be brought up, despite some of the discrimination, despite some of that, despite some of that. and so, But that's what we're supposed to do, I think, as adults, is to challenge that, but in a positive way, you know. Um, so, you know, I've, I've always been um, a creator uh, from being a kid. I've always been um, trying to champion things um, for other people. I've never wanted to see anybody left out. You know, I think you go two ways. You either... If you grow up and you get left out of things because of no fault of your own as a child, it can probably make you a bit bitter and you maybe follow that same route. Or it can make you think, I'm going to make sure that I never exclude anybody. 
I'm going to make sure I include anybody that I can. And I think that for me is really, really important. That's what it taught me. So um, activists, maybe. Uh, maybe I've matured and mellowed a little bit. I was, maybe I'm a campaigner. But, you know, it's not just about coming from a Gypsy Roma uh, background. But, you know, I became a campaigner for all kinds of things. So, for example, every year in June, which is, bizarrely enough, uh, Gypsy Roma Traveller History Month, we have a National Men's Health Week. I created that as a volunteer because I saw there was a need to do it. And I've done lots and lots of things for all different communities um, because I think of myself as, you know, coming from the Gypsy community but being part of every community. Do you think we're generally moving in the right direction in terms of education and inclusion or is there still a lot of work to do? do I think there's always work to be done. But I have to say, you know, I visit many, many schools, sometimes three or four, uh, and sometimes on a week, uh, if it's a special week, I might do one in the morning, one in the afternoon, could do 10 schools in a week, visit 10 schools in a week. Um, But I visit many, many schools throughout the year, and I go back to certain schools. And I think the teachers that we have and the schools that we have are absolutely amazing. Um, If certain people in certain governments were to, you know, and get out of the way and let teachers do more of the stuff that they know needs to be done, then the education system would be much, much better. But in terms of exclusion, it's massively changed. You know, I don't, I don't think that there are very many people who go to work and, and think about exclusion. I think most of the schools I've, I've worked with, they think about inclusion and they do, they do amazing work. Um, so no, um, I, I, yes, it, it has changed. The only place it hasn't changed, I think, is representation in the media. You know, if you look at something like CBBS or something, you know, I've had all these books out. Have we ever had one on CBBS? No. Why? Who knows? Um, has there ever been a TV program that is positive about gypsies and travellers? A proper documentary done by gypsies and travellers themselves? No. Um, so, you know, we are slowly but surely moving towards that, but it's taken a long time. You know, my, my first play was professionally performed um, at the Soho Theatre in London, and then it went into Edinburgh, and, but that's nearly 20 years ago. So, you know, theatres, uh, the media are way behind. Schools are way ahead, which is fantastic. Creative, you know, some of the creative sector, and I class schools in the creative sector, actually, um, that way ahead. So if if the rest of the world around us was as a, well, far ahead as schools, we'd be much, much better off. Do you have any advice for educators who might be working with children from Gypsy or Traveller families for the first time? Absolutely. Um, I would say the first thing is that, you know, you even though they might not look very, very different, um, they come from a very different culture. So I would try and understand their culture. You know, if you live in a caravan, it's very, very different to living in a house. And not every gypsy or traveller lives in a caravan, actually. More people live in houses than caravans. But if you are living in a caravan, storage is at a premium. So they might not be anywhere to put a whole load of books. You know, there are no bookshelves in caravans. I don't think I've ever seen a caravan with a bookshelf. So, you know, can we have stuff electronically maybe 
um, for those children rather than actually a physical book. There are maybe issues getting children to school. Maybe those children have had a very, very disrupted, you know, I had a, I had a reasonably disruptive um, uh, education in terms of schools, going to lots of different schools. But some children, you know, have been to one school and they go to another. Um, you know, have they had a bad experience at the school they've come from? Not in terms of teachers, but in terms of the other kids. You know, do they do they know that they're welcome in your school? Is there anything in your school, if I walk into your school, is there anything in your school that validates my existence? Is there a book that is positive about gypsies and travellers? Is there a picture on the wall? Is there something? You know, is there something about that? Is there a magazine that, that shows me? Um, there's a brilliant magazine called Traveller's Times. So I would say to any teacher, any educator, you can download it, get a copy of that. Have a look at the positives that are going on in the community. And at least you've got something to chat to the parents um, or the child about. And it's something we've talked a lot about over the last year, but that sense of belonging for all children is so important. And like you're saying, if they can see a representation of themselves or, um, or that you are making efforts to create a sense of belonging for for that child or that family, then it's so important and, and you're much more likely to be able to engage that child when it comes to teaching and learning. Um, I wondered if we could finish by going back to storytelling and, and wondered whether you had a favourite short story you might be able to share with us. Gosh, um, very few of my stories are actually short, um, but I have so many favourite stories. Um, I, I created these um, these stories called, because children like weird, you know, they like from year two, year three onwards, Um they like weird, and especially when we get to around about, you know, Halloween time of year, they're always asking, Mr. O'Neill, Mr. O'Neill, Mr. O'Neill, have you got anything weird? Have you got anything scary? I don't do scary. I don't like scary. They're scary too much. But um, there is a story that most of the children like, um, and it's mainly because like it's about older kids. So one of my pals is a, a school caretaker or, you know, school, um, does all of the maintenance on a school, a big school, secondary school. And one of the things he has to do every few months when it's like half terms and stuff is scrape the chewing gum off the underneath of the tables and the chairs. And, you know, he says, oh, man, he says every time. And he's got this, this big bucket of chewing gum, right? So I go and see him. I was like, how are you doing? He's got this big bucket of chewing gum. And this is some of it's still got teeth marks in it, Right. <laughs> And I says to my mate, I says, well, you know, what are you going to do with it? So we just like chuck it in the bin, like in a skip or something. I said, well, do you ever catch them? He said, nah, they're too clever. They stick it. I said, tell you what you could do. I've been watching this program called CSI on the telly. I said, they're like, I said, what you could do is she's that one with the big teeth marks in there. She said, that one with the big teeth marks. I said, maybe you could actually just make, you try and find out who those teeth are. Go into it. Um, and then, of course, that, she's, you know, that's a joke at that point. But then I take the story further on and then there's a, there's a, he leaves the, the chewing gum in the bucket and then there's this lightning strike. You know, I, I, I'm, in, I'm staying in a hotel that night, you know, near the school. There's a lightning strike and it obviously comes through the window. There's a little crack in the window, hole in the window, comes through and the lightning hits this bucket of chewing gum. And something amazingly weird happened. This chewing gum takes on like a sort of a, like sort of a human form. <laughs> And as it comes in, this is, you know, it's just, and it just says the words, 
chewy gooey. <laughs> and then it goes on this, you know, it goes on this this wonderful journey around the school, righting wrongs, you know. Um, so And the kids just absolutely love chewy gooey. And then they're going out of there, chewy gooey. <laughs> and, and again, I think, you know, if you... You sometimes know when a story is hit, a funny story, when you've got a catchphrase and the kids are repeating it. And then you might see them like six months down the line and you walk into the school and they, they don't shout out, hello, Mr. O'Neill, how are you today? They shout, chewy gooey, or whatever, you know. Um, but that's, that's a sense of, that's a sense of that, that um, shared fun. You know, you're sharing something, you're belonging to something. And I think the other thing about story for me, whenever I'm telling stories, is I tend to be the one who's in trouble. I tend to be the one who gets it. And the children love it when adults get in trouble. Yeah. You know, I tell all sorts of stories about, you know, me getting into trouble with certain head teachers. And so like, and you can just see them, oh man, this is just brilliant. There's an adult getting into trouble. Yes, yes. It's just fun. It's just great fun. And I think the other thing is because I've got grey hair and I'm reasonably old and I'm leaping around telling these stories. And actually some of them are like, how old are you? Because they can't quite work out how this old person is leaping around. (laughs) And I think that's another thing about age and, and showing children that, you know, even though people are older, they're still funny. You know, we can still enjoy these things. I think that intergenerational is really important. Really, really important. Definitely. I can just picture the high-pitched hilarity that would be going on in the school hall listening to a story, especially like you're saying, with a catchphrase like that. That's the sort of thing that my son, who's seven, would crease up about. Um, Thank you so much for um, meeting with me today, Richard, and uh, welcoming me to Seven Stories. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much.